Well, hello, everyone. My name is Abby Odio. I am a pastor here at Bethany Green Lake. Welcome to all of you joining us from your various locations across Seattle and our city and our world. It is truly a joy to be with you in worship today. I'm excited for our text because it's one of those passages of scripture that has great potential to help us sort of think afresh about our life, about the meaning of that life, to potentially call us back to our clearest vocation as a people and as God's church. Last week, Pastor Eric taught on the first three commandments that God gives Israel, commands having to do entirely with Israel's exclusive relationship with God. This week, we we build off that text as we study the remaining six commandments, which you just heard read. Keep the Sabbath, honor your father and mother, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, and don't covet what your neighbor has. Now, I know some of you are thinking, yes, I've heard these words before. Seems pretty straightforward. Hardly a life-changing text. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, you probably know of the Ten Commandments. You could probably even name a couple of them. And yet, as is so often the case when we become all too familiar with a particular theme or truth, it's common that we sort of lose our imagination therein. A few months ago, I introduced our three-year-old son to the fruit kiwi, and he was thrilled. Loved the color, he loved the taste. Eating kiwi had become an event in our household. Fast forward now to last week when I prepared his lunch and I placed before him uh, a nice, fresh kiwi. So confident he would love it. I said, this is a special one. You're going to like this lunch. To which he replied, what's the big deal, mom? It's just a kiwi. And if we're not careful, I think that can often become sort of our attitude and our response to the Ten Commandments. So often they're cheapened and moralized to the point that they sort of become a vehicle for these cultural wars or little rules that we live by so as not to upset God. And even if we do break one, it's okay because now we have grace in Jesus. We take seriously the ones like thou shall not kill, but when it comes to honoring the Sabbath, We mostly do it, you know, when it's convenient for us, which we're finding is increasingly less often. The late philosopher Dallas Willard wrote that familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. In other words, certain biblical passages become so familiar to us that they actually lose their meaning, their potency, their ability to shape and form our life in profound ways. It's just a kiwi, but it's actually not. As we begin our study of this moment in Exodus 20, it's important to name um, the reality that God here is speaking directly to Israel, to this group of gathered people. And that matters because it's been a long time since God has spoken directly to any group of people. He's spoken to individuals like Noah in Genesis 6 and Abraham in Genesis 12, but the last time he spoke to more than a single person was in the garden back in Eden. In Genesis 3, God directly engages Adam and Eve together after they've eaten from the tree that God commanded them not to eat from. They entrusted their lives and their story and their well-being to someone and something other than God. And we know what unfolded from there was not pretty. Lying, deception, murder, infighting between families, nations enslaving other people groups, dehumanization. 
There's been a major distortion from that moment in Genesis 3 from God's intention for humankind and all of the created order until now. Now, Moses tells the people to prepare themselves and he leads them out of the camp to meet with God, the text reads. And so we must understand that this moment in the ark of scripture is so much more than just wander simply gathering to hear a message. This moment is about the distance that exists between God and the soul of humanity. This is about God correcting a deep distortion in what the people viewed as the point and the hope and the orientation of their life. Some of you will remember the Hubble telescope that was launched into space in 1990. It was the first telescope of its kind and most significant, the most significant advancement in astronomy since Galileo's telescope in the year of 1906. And part of what makes Hubble so amazing is that it's the first optical telescope to be placed in space. That means it exists far above the rain clouds and the light pollution. And so it has this unobstructed view of the whole universe. And for for the first time, we have been able to see with just shocking clarity distant stars and galaxies, the universe unobscured, distortions now corrected. It's incredible. See, this, this moment for Israel is a Hubble moment of sorts, a moment where God reveals his commandments, yes, but in doing so, he offers a correction to the distortions his beloved creation has been living with and living in since Genesis 3, gives us an unobscured view of life as it's intended to be lived. The Jewish rabbi Joshua Heschel put it this way, we have never been the same since the day on which the voice of God overwhelmed us at Sinai. In other words, God's interaction with this people at Mount Sinai, it's not simply meant to be relegated to a a catchy little song. They are words meant to be absorbed, to be formed within us, to be lived, to leave us and the world overwhelmed with God. So today, as we lean into how that might be true in our own stories and our collective story as Bethany Community Church, I'll invite us to consider three observations from the text, which are this. What is primary becomes pervasive. What is primary is revealed in community. And then finally, we are formed in Christ. What is primary becomes pervasive. What is primary is revealed in community, and we are formed in Christ. Would you pray with me now as we study God's word together today? God, we thank you that you are a God that found Israel, that you spoke to them, that you were not content to let distortion go unchecked in our world, but in the name and for the sake of love, you intervened. God, thank you that you find us today. Thank you that you speak to us still. God, we open ourselves up now with humility to your shaping word. May it form us, may it create in us a heart that more and more reflects the heart of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we begin with this initial observation, which is what is primary in our lives becomes pervasive. 
what is primary in our lives becomes pervasive. If we do a quick recap of last week's passage, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 7, you'll remember the first three of the Ten Commands can sort of be summed as God saying to his people, keep me primary. Keep me first. Get to know me. Know my character and my words. Don't turn to other gods. Don't belittle my name and use it as a device to get your way. But actually, let me be God of your life. Bend your will towards mine. Keep me primary. Now, it's easy to read these Ten Commands and sort of compartmentalize them. Like, they each hold a task that uh, sort of stands alone and that we should aspire towards. But what we find as we reflect on them a bit more is how essentially enmeshed they are. The first three commands speak to the importance of keeping God primary. And the next seven commands are all about embodying God, about making God pervasive in our actions, in our relationships, in our families, in our bodies. And God knows this happens not through willpower or through grit, but by keeping God at the center, keeping God primary, by knowing God in this deep way whereby his way becomes my way. Just before Israel comes to the foot of the mountain to receive these words, God reveals something important to Moses about the vocation and calling of the people. In Exodus 19.6, God says, You shall be for me a priestly kingdom. The you here is plural, like y'all will be for me a priestly kingdom. God is speaking not just to Moses' calling, but the calling of all of Israel. And that word priest is hugely important. A priest in that day was essentially a mediator between God and the people. To mediate is to come between. A priest comes between people and God and shows the people what God is like. So when God invites Israel to be priest, it's an invitation to embody and to help the world see God. We've seen hints of this already in the book of Exodus. Back when the Israelites were still enslaved in Egypt, God called on Moses to go to Egypt and command Pharaoh to let his people go free. The text says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. In other words, Moses became the mediator between God and Pharaoh, between God and humanity. Now, we bring all this together and it becomes clear that these commands we heard read today, they are not arbitrary, nor are they tidy little rules that we sort of live and do our best to do and check off a list. They are God's way of revealing God's heart and God's character and God's nature to the world, God's way of correcting and healing the distortion that was brought about in Genesis 3. This priestly kingdom will make God pervasive throughout the world And to do that, God says, keep me primary, keep me central. You will embody, you will live out, you will make known what you know. So first and foremost, know me. Back when I was in college here in Seattle, a group of friends and I would sometimes go dance down at Century Ballroom, which is this dance studio here in Seattle. And the way they would set up Uh, the night is that the first part was sort of a lesson where you learned the technicalities of whatever dance they were teaching. And then the second part of the night was sort of a free-for-all where everyone just sort of practiced what they'd learned. 
I actually hated doing this, mostly because I am truly a terrible dancer. And so one of these evenings, I'm meeting up with some friends, and I actually arrived late, and I I missed the portion of the evening um, where they taught the dance. I was quite thrilled about this because it means I wouldn't have to participate. So I'm standing by the wall, really enjoying watching my friends try to do the salsa, and uh, this elderly fella about a foot shorter than me who I recognized as being the instructor approaches me and he says quite definitively, come dance. And I was happy to be able to inform him that in fact, I couldn't dance the salsa with him because I'd missed the instruction portion of the night. I simply didn't know how. And I'll never forget this small and confident man (laughs) saying to me somewhat theatrically, you don't need instruction, you just need me. Turns out he was right. For the next 10 minutes or so, we danced. We danced better than I have ever danced before or since. Turns out instruction, while important, is less important than connection, than being aligned with the one who knows how to dance, one who has a vision for that dance, one who created the dance itself, so to speak. And in a sense, when we read... Do not lie, do not steal, do not cheat on your spouse, do not enviously want what you do not have. It's sort of tempting to focus first on the instruction, to get deep into the minutia of what does it mean to lie? And the instruction, the specifics of this law are absolutely important, but a first and utter importance is God saying as a priest, you're revealing me and you need me deeply, completely, exclusively. Come dance with me. Make me the primary source of your attention and your thought life and your worship because because what is primary in you will be lived out through you. That brings us to this second observation, which, which is this. What is primary is revealed in community. What is primary is revealed in community. See, as we pay close attention to the text, we see that commands four through 10 all bring us into proximity with other people, with family, with neighbors, with roommates and classmates, with flesh and blood people who have their own stories and layers and politics and gifts and imperfections. Later in the New Testament, when Paul writes about the law to the Romans, he quotes these particular commands and then he says, All of these could be summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. And as we walk through the law God gives Israel in Exodus 20, we see this is true. In verse 10, God gives a commandment about keeping the Sabbath and resting from work each day. Notice, however, it's not just about the individual, it's about extending the Sabbath to every person over whom you have influence. Honor your father and mother, God says in verse 12. Often we miss the profound nature of this command as it places mother and father as equally to be honored. Implicit in this command is a validation of the dignity of all people, including gender, all genders and all ages. God says your parents take seriously their way and their words in God's ordering of family and creation. And then you shall not kill because the life of your neighbor belongs to God alone. And you should not cheat on your spouse because God's creational intention for sexuality is always connected to loyalty. And don't steal because when you do, both your dignity and the dignity of the person from whom you take, it's diminished. Don't lie. Don't speak deceptively about people. 
Don't get bogged down in conspiracy. Don't, but stay committed to the truth. God honors the truth. God works in the truth. God loves through the truth. And then finally, don't covet. Don't let your heart and mind fixate on what you lack, wanting what you don't have. It only breeds discontent and often leads to exploitation of other people, hoarding, inequality. Don't do it. All these are summed in this simple but profound command, love your neighbor. Now, I mention all of this because it matters that God is speaking to a group of people about how they are to interact with one another and with people outside their community. See, we can receive the words from the first three commandments and think we're living lives in which God is primary, in which God is first and central. But commands four through ten, they move us into the sphere of community. And it's in this particular sphere that what is actually primary in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds, it's revealed. These laws, in a sense, hold up a mirror to Israel and by extension to us, the church, and allows us to see for better or worse who we are, who or what we actually worship. It becomes pervasive in how we do life together in what comes up as we attempt to love our neighbor. I'll never forget some months ago, I was talking with a good friend and I was lamenting to this friend that I feel like I used to be a really patient person and then I had children And somewhere in that journey, my kids like robbed me of this ability I had to exercise patience. Essentially, I was saying I used to be like this saint. And this friend laughed with me and then kindly suggested that I was probably equally patient before I had children, but that my kids had exposed in me that which had always been there, which is actually a lack of patience. And I tell that story because in some ways it can feel easy and obvious for us to declare God is primary and God's primary in my life and all I do and that hope and intention is real. And yet when we move into community, when we come into proximity with our neighbor, so often what actually is pervasive in us is not God's way or God's love, but other lesser loyalties. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and it's actually a perfect example of this. A man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho is robbed, and he's left by the side of the road, beaten, naked, half dead. And along comes none other than a priest. A priest. Now remember, a priest is the one who uh, mediates God, called to be the presence of God. The priest is you, and it's me. But this priest has places to be. This priest has a life that he needs to live. He can't be inconvenienced, and so he keeps going. And the way Jesus tells this story is intended to help us see and to feel the disconnect here. The disconnect between what the priest claims is primary in his life, God, and what is pervasive through him, not God's way, not love of neighbor, not human dignity. It's a a distorted picture. Man, that story gets me every time. I cannot love God and walk around my neighbor. I cannot separate commands one through three from four through ten. 
The very role of the priest is to live at the intersection of these commands. Worship God expressed in loving care for neighbor. And yet how often we are like the priest in Jesus' story. What is primary becomes any number of things. Self-preservation, fear, comfort, our own pride, our own ego. And while I may not literally walk around a neighbor in the ditch, I certainly have gossiped about them before. Or I refuse to acknowledge structures and systems that keep them from flourishing. Or I spin a mistruth about them because it serves my ego. And this is not always the case, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. And just speaking for myself, sometimes what is primary is not pretty. This is why Paul says in Romans 3 that we are not made righteous through the law, but rather through the law we become conscious of our sin. And so this list of commands that can be summed as a call to love neighbor clarifies what is primary or perhaps more importantly, what is not primary. Now this, this moment of clarification, it most certainly evokes in us a posture, perhaps even a feeling of vulnerability. It's hard to name that that disconnect exists between in you and me. For Peter, this is the moment he weeps bitterly after swearing he never denied Jesus. Swearing, Jesus, you are primary in my life. And then he goes and does the thing he swore he would never do to save his own life. He denies Jesus three times. This is Paul writing to the Romans in chapter 7, confessing, For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Disconnect. This is me just a couple of weeks ago. I was interviewing this really, gosh, profound and insightful woman named Gail Boss. She's an author. And I was interviewing for her, uh, her for our podcast. The topic is Lent and kind of what we can learn in this season from animals that are tragically disappearing from the planet because of human consumption. And Gail's done a lot of studying of this and writing around this idea And if I'm really honest, this is not something I've given a lot of thought to before. So we're chatting, and in the first several minutes of that podcast, I just felt utterly exposed. I felt this disconnect in me so powerfully. She said, you know, we've done a lot of lip service to this idea of loving and loving sacrificially. But she said, in reality, we're all about power. We're all about accumulation. We're all about saving our own life in our own way. And this way has become so primary and second nature to us that we don't even see or think about our neighbor when it comes to certain choices we make around consumption. We violate neighbor for the sake of greed all the while preaching love. And as she said those words, I was aware of just how little God's lordship in my life at certain times shapes the choices I make around things like spending money, around consuming, around generosity. Now, one of the rather mysterious truths of the gospel, ultimately for Israel, for Peter, for Paul, and for us, 
is that this moment when what is actually primary becomes revealed in us and to us, we find, or rather we are found, in that place of vulnerability by Christ himself. It's a hard place. It's a wilderness place. And yet it's a good place because from this spot is where our formation begins. And this is our third point. We are formed in Christ. See, this, this ethic of love, of being so connected to God and to God's way being primary for us that it becomes pervasive through us, it was demonstrated perfectly once and only once by Christ himself. Jesus had no other gods. God was primary, period. And so when the moment came, Jesus went to the cross and the love of God for the world became pervasive through him for us. He fulfilled the law. And that means for us good news, not because the law in Exodus 20 no longer matters, but because through these commands, which we cannot keep on our own strength, we learn to invite God into our weakness. We learn dependence. We learn to trust. We learn to make God primary once again. And then in doing so, in in receiving the love God gives through Christ in our weakness, we find ourselves able and equipped and strengthened for that calling to love the world, to be and embody love as God intended it, to be priest. I love the way Augustine sums this dynamic. He, He writes this, the law was given that grace might be sought and grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. The law was given that grace might be sought, and grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. In one of the most profound teachings of all time, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually gets at this very dynamic. He names this interplay between law and grace and formation. He takes several of the teachings from our scripture in Exodus 20, and he recasts them in sort of a surprising way. For instance, in Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard it said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. It's interesting that instead of just doing away with the law, Jesus actually ups the expectation of it. Why does he do that? And it would seem Jesus is addressing a crowd of people um, who have made it their life's work to uphold the letter of the law. And in doing so, they are living with this sort of false sense of righteousness. Their obedience is not motivated by love of God and neighbor, but love of self and and toxic religion consumed in, in legalism and in judgment. And so Jesus extends the law to these remarkably difficult and impossible standards as a way of saying it was never about perfection. It was always about transformation. It was about looking honestly and deeply within ourselves and discovering that we need God primarily, unquestionably, entirely. The law in in revealing our weakness brings the holy reality of Jesus back to the center of our existence so that we might indeed become the kingdom of priests that we are called to be. So I invite you to take a moment today and just 
consider in your own story the past year, even just the past week. Live for a moment with that question, what is most pervasive through your life? What kind of love flows through you to the world, to family, to neighbor, to enemy? Are you priests who mediate the love of God or a priest who passes the neighbor on the roadside? And hear me out, that question is not meant to evoke shame in you. I think just in the past week, there are various moments where I have been both priests. The question is meant to bring us to a space where we see ourselves and our imperfection with clarity. Like August said, that grace might be sought. That we see ourselves with clarity and then come back to Christ. See Christ, find Christ, continually willing our good and working transformation in us, filling us with the mind and the heart and the love and the way of Christ. That's how the law transforms us. This week I had the great privilege of welcoming my little baby nephew into the world. His name is Lou Arnold, and he is six pounds of utter perfection, as you can see here. And as I held him the day he came home, I really felt kind of this visceral, like, overwhelming emotion. On the one hand, I have so much love for him and excitement that he's finally here, and I just want things to go well for him. So much hope for his little life. And then on the other hand, kind of this competing feeling, this heaviness, knowing that the world can be so hard and so harsh. And I was sitting there with his little body and just feeling all these things. And as I stared at little Lou's face, I started to think about this priestly kingdom. This priestly kingdom that God commissions in the wilderness of Exodus. And I smiled about little Lou. No longer thinking about, uh, no longer was I consumed by thoughts of what the world would do to him, but I was entirely hopeful about in Christ what God would do through him. What would become pervasive in his little story. Friends, church, my hope is that it will be so for each of us. May we be a community primarily filled in Christ. And may Christ's love be so utterly pervasive in us that people see the world through us as God would have it be. Just like that Hubble telescope, the universe unobscured, distortions corrected, dignity and value of people honored and upheld and celebrated, may we truly be a kingdom of priests and priestesses. Let's pray together. Loving Father, we are grateful to be your children. We're grateful to be your church. God, I pray that um, as we receive these words from your Holy Scripture today, that that's not a call that would land lightly in our lives. God, loving you and loving our neighbor, you remind us time and time again, may it be central to who you are. And we just pause for a moment and admit, admit that we are fickle in that pursuit. That so often our attention spans are short. 
our loyalties to lesser gods high. And yet, God, you still, you still, you still, you come in the person of Christ and you find us and you fill us and you meet us in our weakness. God, we offer ourselves to you today. Turn us into the priests that you would have us be. Help us to be attentive and mindful of you. Help us to make you primary from moment to moment that indeed your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.